Chapter fifteen of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter fifteen. The specific symptoms of poetic power elucidated in a critical analysis of Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis and Rape of Lucrece. In the application of these principles to purposes of practical criticism, as employed in the appraisement of works more or less imperfect, I have endeavoured to discover what the qualities in a poem are, which may be deemed promises and specific symptoms of poetic power, as distinguished from general talent determined to poetic composition by accidental motives, by an act of the will, rather than by the inspiration of a genial and productive nature. In this investigation I could not, I thought, do better, than keep before me the earliest work of the greatest genius that perhaps human nature has yet produced, our myriad-minded Shakespeare, I mean the Venus and Adonis and the Lucrece, works which give at once strong promises of the strength and yet obvious proofs of the immaturity of his genius. From these I abstracted the following marks as characteristics of original poetic genius in general. 1. In the Venus and Adonis, the first and most obvious excellence is the perfect sweetness of the versification, its adaptation to the subject, and the power displayed in varying the march of the words without passing into a loftier and more majestic rhythm than was demanded by the thoughts, or permitted by the propriety of preserving a sense of melody predominant. The delight in richness and sweetness of sound, even to a faulty excess, if it be evidently original, and not the result of an easily imitable mechanism, I regard as a highly favourable promise in the compositions of a young man. The man that hath not music in his soul can indeed never be a genuine poet. Imagery, even taken from nature, much more when transplanted from books, as travels, voyages, and works of natural history, affecting incidents, just thoughts, interesting personal or domestic feelings, and with these the art of their combination or intertexture in the form of a poem, may all by incessant effort be acquired as a trade, by a man of talent and much reading, who, as I once before observed, has mistaken an intense desire of poetic reputation for a natural poetic genius, the love of the arbitrary end for possession of the peculiar means. But the sense of musical delight with the power of producing it is a gift of imagination, and this, together with the power of reducing multitude into unity of effect, and modifying a series of thoughts by some one predominant thought or feeling, may be cultivated and improved, but can never be learned, it is in these that poeta nascitur non fit. 2. A second promise of genius is the choice of subjects very remote from the private interests and circumstances of the writer himself. At least I have found that where the subject is taken immediately from the author's personal sensations and experiences, the excellence of a particular poem is but an equivocal mark, and often a fallacious pledge of genuine poetic power. We may perhaps remember the tale of the statuary, who had acquired considerable reputation for the legs of his goddesses, though the rest of the statue accorded but indifferently with ideal beauty, till his wife, elated by her husband's praises, modestly acknowledged that she had been his constant model. In the Venus and Adonis this proof of poetic power exists even to excess. It is throughout as if a superior spirit, more intuitive, more intimately conscious even than the characters themselves, not only of every outward look and act, but of the flux and reflux of the mind in all its subtlest thoughts and feelings, were placing the whole before our view, himself meanwhile unparticipating in the passions, and actuated only by that pleasurable excitement which had resulted from the energetic fervour 
of his own spirit in so vividly exhibiting what it had so accurately and profoundly contemplated i think i should have conjectured from these poems that even then the great instinct which impelled the poet to the drama was secretly working in him prompting him by a serious and never-broken chain of imagery always vivid and because unbroken often minute by the highest effort of the picturesque in words of which words are capable higher perhaps than was ever realized by any other poet even dante not excepted to provide a substitute for that visual language that constant intervention and running comment by tone look and gesture which in his dramatic works he was entitled to expect from the players his venus and adonis seem at once the characters themselves and the whole representation of those characters by the most consummate actors you seem to be told nothing but to see and hear everything hence it is from the perpetual activity of attention required on the part of the reader from the rapid flow the quick change and the playful nature of the thoughts and images and above all from the alienation and if i may hazard such an expression the utter aloofness of the poet's own feelings from those of which he is at once the painter and the analyst that though the very subject cannot but detract from the pleasure of a delicate mind yet never was poem less dangerous on a moral account instead of doing as ariosto and as still more offensively wieland has done instead of degrading and deforming passion into appetite the trials of love into the struggles of concupiscence shakespeare has here represented the animal impulse itself so as to preclude all sympathy with it by dissipating the reader's notice among the thousand outward images and now beautiful now fanciful circumstances which form its dresses and its scenery or by diverting our attention from the main subject by those frequent witty or profound reflections which the poet's ever active mind has deduced from or connected with the imagery and the instance the reader is forced into too much action to sympathize with the merely passive of our nature as little can a mind thus roused and awakened be brooded on by mean and indistinct emotion as the low lazy mist can creep upon the surface of a lake while a strong gale is driving it onward in waves and billows three it has been before observed that images however beautiful though faithfully copied from nature and as accurately represented in words do not of themselves characterize the poet they become proofs of original genius only as far as they are modified by a predominant passion or by associated thoughts or images awakened by that passion or when they have the effect of reducing multitude to unity or succession to an instant or lastly when a human and intellectual life is transferred to them from the poet's own spirit which shoots its being through earth sea and air in the two following lines for instance there is nothing objectionable nothing which would preclude them from forming in their proper place part of a descriptive poem behold yon row of pines that shorn and bowed bend from the sea-blast seen at twilight eve but with a small alteration of rhythm the same words would be equally in their place in a book of topography or in a descriptive tour the same image will rise into semblance of poetry if thus conveyed yon row of bleak and visionary pines by twilight glimpse discerned mark how they flee from the fierce sea-blast all their tresses wild streaming before them i have given this as an illustration by no means as an instance of that particular excellence which i had in view and in which shakespeare even in his earliest as in his latest work surpasses all other poets it is by this that he still gives a dignity and a passion to the objects which he presents unaided by any previous excitement they burst upon us at once in life and in power full many a glorious morning have i seen flatter the mountain-tops with sovereign eye not mine own fears nor the prophetic soul of the wide world dreaming on things to come the mortal moon hath her eclipse endured 
and the sad augurs mock their own presage incertainties now crown themselves assured and peace proclaims olives of endless age now with the drops of this most balmy time my love looks fresh and death to me subscribes since spite of him i'll live in this poor rhyme while he insults o'er dull and speechless tribes and thou in this shalt find thy monument when tyrants crests and tombs of brass are spent as of higher worth so doubtless still more characteristic of poetic genius does the imagery become when it moulds and colours itself to the circumstances passion or character present and foremost in the mind for unrivalled instances of this excellence the reader's own memory will refer him to the lear othello in short to which not of the great ever-living dead man's dramatic works in opem m copia facit how true it is to nature he has himself finely expressed in the instance of love in his ninety-eighth sonnet from you have i been absent in the spring when proud pied april dressed in all its trim hath put a spirit of youth in everything that heavy satin laughed and leapt with him yet nor the lays of birds nor the sweet smell of different flowers in odour and in hue could make me any summer story tell or from their proud lap pluck them where they grew nor did i wonder at the lilies white nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose they were though sweet but figures of delight drawn after you you pattern of all those yet seemed it winter still and you away as with your shadow i with these did play scarcely less sure or if a less valuable not less indispensable mark gonimon men poeto hostis rema genarion lacoi will the imagery supply when with more than the power of the painter the poet gives us the liveliest image of succession with the feeling of simultaneousness with this he breaketh from the sweet embrace of those fair arms which bound him to her breast and homeward through the dark land runs apace look how a bright star shooteth from the sky so glides he in the night from venus eye four the last character i shall mention which would prove indeed but little except as taken conjointly with the former yet without which the former could scarce exist in a high degree and even if this were possible would give promises only of transitory flashes and a meteoric power is depth and energy of thought no man was ever yet a great poet without being at the same time a profound philosopher for poetry is the blossom and the fragrancy of all human knowledge human thoughts human passions emotions language in shakespeare's poems the creative power and the intellectual energy wrestle as in a war embrace each in its excess of strength seems to threaten the extinction of the other at length in the drama they were reconciled and fought each with its shield before the breast of the other or like two rapid streams that at their first meeting within narrow and rocky banks mutually strive to repel each other and intermix reluctantly and in tumult but soon finding a wider channel and more yielding shores blend and dilate and flow on in one current and with one voice the venus and adonis did not perhaps allow the display of the deeper passions but the story of lucretia seems to favour and even demand their intensest workings and yet we find in shakespeare's management of the tale neither pathos nor any other dramatic quality there is the same minute and faithful imagery as in the former poem in the same vivid colours inspirited by the same impetuous vigour of thought and diverging and contracting with the same activity of the assimilative and of the modifying faculties and with a yet larger display a yet wider range of knowledge and reflection and lastly with the same perfect dominion often domination over the whole world of language what then shall we say even this that shakespeare no mere child of nature no automaton of genius no passive vehicle of inspiration possessed by the spirit not possessing it first studied patiently meditated deeply understood minutely 
till knowledge become habitual and intuitive wedded itself to his habitual feelings and at length gave birth to that stupendous power by which he stands alone with no equal or second in his own class to that power which seated him on one of the two glory-smitten summits of the poetic mountain with milton as his compeer not rival while the former darts himself forth and passes into all the forms of human character and passion the one proteus of the fire and the flood the other attracts all forms and things to himself into the unity of his own ideal all things and modes of action shape themselves anew in the being of milton while shakespeare becomes all things yet for ever remaining himself o oh, what great men hast thou not produced england my country truly indeed we must be free or die who speak the tongue which shakespeare spake the faith and morals hold which milton held in everything we are sprung of earth's first blood have titles manifold end of chapter fifteen